All right, gentlemen, good evening. I have the privilege of introducing our speaker tonight. Pastor Cliff Buttermore has served three local churches in a wide variety of ministry areas, from youth ministry to preaching, from discipleship to counseling. Apart from a few years ministering in a Minnesota church, Cliff has served on the pastoral team at Berean Baptist Church in Livonia since 1993. His current areas of oversight include family and children discipleship and administration. Cliff is a gifted teacher of the scriptures and of biblical theology. <coughs> he is committed to intentional discipleship and the gospel as the key to the Christian's hope and growth. We are thankful for his friendship and his willingness to return and serve as one of this year's elective teachers. Help us welcome Cliff Butler. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate that. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter number 9. I don't know if what I talk about tonight will generate questions. I have no idea. Um, I'll try and save a little time at the end in case it does. Um, that first session with Michael was awesome. That was really good. I do not tire of hearing about what Christ did and the benefit that we derive from that that's tremendous. I want to read all of chapter number 9. Of Second Samuel, and before I do that, I'll pray, and once we read, we'll get into what we're discussing this evening. Heavenly Father, your word does your work to create and sustain your people. That gives hope to men like myself. I know my flaws, and I know that salvation is a gift. It's not something that I've earned. And any gift and ability that I have has been given to me by you. And though your gift is pure and it's rich and it's blessed and it's something for which I should give praise, I still, as a flawed man, struggle to use those gifts well for your glory and with purity. So I'm glad to know that you do your work through your word. And it's not contingent upon me or my brothers here. Your spirit is here to help us. Your word is our guide. And we pray that we'd be enriched by it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, follow along as I read. Second Samuel chapter 9. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, 
For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. I received Christ as Savior in November of 1979 at the age of 16. A loving, zealous group of fundamentalist Christians taught, nurtured, encouraged, and counseled me through the early years of my walk. I thank God to this day for their sacrificial and loving investment in me, a young man they barely knew. As you might expect, in a fundamentalist church... I received a heavy dose of instruction about personal holiness. I did not rebel against that instruction. I received what I heard as thus says the Lord, and I did my best to honor it by doing it. Thank you very much. Though my remaining, or through my remaining years in high school, my college years, and finally my ministry years, I continued to do my best to honor the Lordship of Christ by doing His will. My desire constrained me to obey and serve, but under the surface, that my best motivation robbed me of joy because it served my idolatrous emphasis on self. You see, my heart, and when I say heart, think character, interacted with the personal holiness teaching and twisted that good instruction away from grace to personal effort and the accompanying detrimental evaluation of myself. The sad result was that I often felt defeated on the spinning hamster wheel of failure. During that time, not so long ago, I belonged to the Father through Jesus Christ's work. I was saved. Yet I belonged without a thorough understanding or appreciation of Christ's atonement and its life-changing effect on me and for me. God has provided several aha moments over the course of the last 15 years to begin the slow but blessed work of changing my orientation from work to measure up to rest in and launch from his work. In this workshop, lowliness to exaltation, I'm no longer worthless, I probably won't open new minds for treasure hunting but I do hope to expose existing treasures in the minds already known to you. If our work together is successful, I hope that you will take home another narrative 
that will help you better understand the blessed gift of God's atonement in Jesus and its practical applications in your life. So, we're going to think about lowliness to exaltation through Mephibosheth, the grandson of King Saul. We'll think about that exaltation by emphasizing several facts from the record in Samuel. So here's the first fact. Mephibosheth lived precariously. Now by that I don't mean that his actions were precarious. I mean that his very life was precarious in nature because of what happened to him. If you think back to 1 Samuel 31, this is the passage where Saul... Jonathan, and two of Mephibosheth's uncles die at the Battle of Mount Gilboa. As a result of that defeat to the Philistines, the nurse attendant to Mephibosheth fled Gibeah, fearing that the Philistines would come there and vanquish the household of Saul. In the process of flight... She, uh, well, we'll leave that for a second. The battle in Mount Gilboa, though, left this boy fatherless. Jonathan was a soldier. Jonathan lost his life that day. So Mephibosheth is a fatherless son. That's a significant event in his life. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse number 4, a related event, as the nursemaid is leaving with Mephibosheth, she drops him. And he suffered some kind of injury either to the spine, maybe a multiple fracture in the leg. We don't know for sure, but it says in the scripture, emphasized here in 2 Samuel 9, that he was lame in both of his feet. It could have been a spinal injury. It could have been a multiple fracture, which could not heal properly. Whatever it was, this boy was left powerless. Listen to what 2 Samuel 19 says. These are the words of Mephibosheth. He's defending himself to David much later in life. Verse 25, King David asks Mephibosheth, why didn't you come with me? This is when Absalom banishes. He's exercising a coup against his father. David is forced to flee Jerusalem, and Mephibosheth did not go with him. David's returning. Absalom is dead. He's coming to be the king again. And David asked Mephibosheth directly in Jerusalem, why didn't you come with me? Mephibosheth replied with these words, my lord, the king, my servant Ziba deceived me. I told him, saddle my donkey so I can go with the king. For as you know, I am crippled. Mephibosheth could not saddled his own donkey. He needed help. He was a powerless man. So fatherless and powerless. But there's a third event in his life that led to the precarious nature of it. That third one coincides with David's rise to power. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, on three occasions, it is said that the house of David and the house of Saul were at war with one another. So the ten tribe northern group, which was loyal to Saul, was fighting with the two-tribe southern group about who would rule and reign in Israel. Mephibosheth, as a grandson to Saul, would be considered a member of the Saul dynasty and a potential rival to David's rise and reign in Israel. 
So what happened? The war between the families for the right to rule left Mephibosheth exposed and insecure. So he has no father to help fend for him. He's powerless because of this physical disability, and now he's displaced because he has to flee for his life. He's fearful that he will lose his life. So he goes to live as a result of this nurse attendant taking him there to the area of the Transjordan. So he lived in the area where the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh lived on the east side of Jordan, away from his tribal heritage and his family allotment because that was seized. So he had no place. So he lived here. So this lame man is vulnerable and unable to do much of anything to change his status. In a worldly sense, his only hope is either a neglectful king or a merciful king. A king that looks the other way or doesn't care, or a king that's going to show him mercy because he can never get away from who he is. He's a descendant of Saul. And the ruling king is David. And he will be viewed as a rival. He can't get away from that. So this is his only hope. There's a second fact in the text, or in this narrative, and it's this. This is where we begin to see some hope. David ruled differently. David ruled differently. And I'll I'll point you to the text in a few minutes. Again, let me read from my notes. You can tell I'm scripted. But I hope that I have some eye contact from time to time for you. David plays the key role in Mephibosheth's reversal of fortune. Because of David, Saul's grandson no longer needed to live in a hiding or live in hiding away from the family line and to benefit from him or benefit to him. King David played the role of rescuer, reconciler, and promise keeper for the lame son of Jonathan. As the first king in the Davidic line, he's a precursor to the son of David that would provide the once for all atonement for his people. David's rule. The way he acts in this instance will tell us something about the rule and the ways of the son of David. So in this David, we'll see something about the coming son of David and his interaction with us. In this text about David and Mephibosheth, we see a Middle Eastern monarch whose actions differ a great deal from his contemporaries. And let's just quickly look at the differences. Number one, David did not exult in the defeat of his political enemies or actively work to eliminate them. He did not rejoice when his enemies died, and he did not actively work to eliminate his enemies. You'll probably recall on two occasions While David was not yet coronated king, although he'd been anointed king, that Saul tried to kill him. Or David had two opportunities, excuse me, to kill Saul in that period when Saul was trying to take his life. Chapter 24, 1 Samuel, chapter number 26. David refused to act against Saul even when opportunities presented themselves that seemed justified and were even encouraged by friends and counselors. 
Listen to this from 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 3 through 5. You can turn there if you'd like. It's chapter 24, verses 3 through 5. The scripture says, At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord. The king, I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. A story that's familiar to you, but do you know how unusual this is in this time period for a Middle Eastern monarch? Have you ever read Assyrian history? Babylonian history? Even the, is the, the history of the Israelite kings near the end of both monarchies, how often one king is offed by another king or by a group of rogue individuals. David lived by a different standard. It might have been customary and it might have been acceptable for an Edomite or for a Canaanite or for a Hittite or an Egyptian. But David knew God had a time and God had a law and he was to obey it. And it comes to have direct bearing on Mephibosheth himself. So he doesn't exalt in the defeat of his political enemies and he's, at, he's not actively working to eliminate them. So he rules differently. Secondly, in not taking advantage of two opportunities, we also see another way in which he does not exalt. Neither did David celebrate the deaths of Saul, Abner, or Ishbosheth. Saul was an enemy of David. I mean, when, when a man is throwing javelins at you, after inviting you into his palace to offer him comfort with your harp or your musical instrument, he doesn't like you. Saul hated David so much that when Jonathan, his son, worked to protect him, Jonathan almost became an enemy of his father. So there's a great deal of animus between these two individuals in the sense that David was being pursued and Saul was the pursuer. But David was not reciprocal in his hatred for Saul. Listen to 2 Samuel chapter number 4, verses 35 through 37. So again, we're talking about Saul, Abner, and Ishbosheth. All men within this house, Saul and Ishbosheth, are related. Abner is a captain that worked under Saul. So they're all this Saul dynasty. It says in chapter 4, Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. 
So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. Why did they know that? Because he did not rejoice in his death. He didn't side with Joab. He didn't say it was okay. And he honored Abner and respected him as a human being and as a soldier. Then chapter 5, verse 3 of 2 Samuel. All the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Why did the Israelites, the northern ten tribes, send their elders to do this? Because they knew King, king David was different. He didn't live by the customary law. He didn't look at these political opponents as enemies per se. God would do what God was going to do in God's time. So he did not exalt in the defeat of his political enemies or actively work to eliminate them. But here's another way that his rule is different. He chose to bless his potential enemy rather than curse him. And that's where we get to Mephibosheth. As I said, it would have been acceptable for him to execute Saul's grandson per the custom of the day. David's words, do not fear, for I will show you kindness to Mephibosheth upon calling him, indicated that it was the custom of the day. Mephibosheth feared coming. But what was he supposed to do? Can a lame man run away? Can he get away from the armies of the king? No, he had to come. So David's first words to him after addressing him by name are words of encouragement. Do not fear. He wanted to bless his potential rival. Now, in commentaries, in study, it's quite possible that David brought Mephibosheth into his home to eat at his table all the days of Mephibosheth's life so that he could keep his eye on him. That wasn't uncommon. That happened in numerous places in the Old Testament. That was a way for you to keep an eye on your political opponent. But listen to this from a commentary by Mir Sternberg. He says this, Is David willing to undergo such a daily ordeal caring for a lame man in his home, just in memory of his friendship with Jonathan, as he himself declares, or as the price for keeping an eye on the last of Saul's line. This last sentence is important. Considering David's genius for aligning the proper, which is showing grace, with the expedient, keeping an eye on your enemy, he may be acting from both motives. I think he did want to keep an eye on Mephibosheth. But I don't think he kept him in chains. I think he did care for him in his home as a son. David was a genius at combining the proper and the expedient. He was a very wise man. So he chose to bless his potential enemy. Now here's some facts surrounding that decision. Number one. He chose to bless Mephibosheth after he received confirmation of his exclusive reign. So the elders in the northern ten tribes 
crown him king. The southern two tribes have already crowned him king, but something else significant happens, which led David, I think, to feel that he could do this. He would not have a rival. It's 2 Samuel chapter number 7, where God tells him that there will be a perpetual dynasty from this family of David. God says there will be a ruler that sits on the throne of Israel forever. God made that promise, and then David acts on it. Again, from a commentary, the Expositor's Bible, Expositor's Bible Commentary, it says this, Now that he is the undisputed king, a fact emphasized again and again in chapter number 9, for instance, verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 9, and 11 of chapter 9, David can afford to be magnanimous. He can afford to be generous because he's secure. He doesn't have to worry about the line of Saul. God has made him a promise, and David acts on that promise and now reaches out. Secondly, David chose to bless Mephibosheth because he wanted to honor a commitment and mimic God. Verse number one, look at it in chapter nine. David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So there's the promise. I want to show him kindness for the sake of Jonathan. I made a promise to Jonathan. And in verse number three, it's worded differently. The king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him. That word kindness can be translated mercy, it can be translated steadfast love. So he wants to keep a promise, and he wants to mimic God. Keeping the promise is mimicking God, because God keeps promises. Listen to these words about the last meeting between Jonathan and Saul. It's 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 through 16. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So that's Jonathan speaking to David. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Do you understand what's being said here? Jonathan knows what happens in this time period and in this part of the world. Jonathan knows that the house of Saul and that dynasty is ending with one king. Jonathan won't be the king. So in the customary sense of the time, what will Jonathan become? an enemy to David, a rival to David. Jonathan says, when God cuts off all of your enemies, keep your steadfast love to me. Don't kill me, David. And it goes on to say, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. He's asking God to curse the enemies of David. And he's doing that in the presence of David. Jonathan's confident that David will keep his promise. 
Because if David does not keep that promise, then Jonathan just cursed himself and everybody that is a descendant of his. That's powerful. By seeking out the posterity of Jonathan, David chose to fulfill his promise. He chose to live by his word. David also recognized that his kindness looked similar to God's kindness, for it was rooted in covenant. God's kindness to us is not rooted in what we are or what we do. Michael stated that very well in that session in the auditorium. When we think about why would God love us, the right answer, both from our experience and from our knowledge of scriptures, there's no reason that God would love us. None. None. When, when Michael said that, I, I thought to myself, you know, I'm thinking theologically, because you try and think correctly when you're engaging with information. Well, of course, you know, God, there's no reason that God would love me. But then there's a little voice in the back of my head that idolatrous herself. Well, I'm a pretty nice guy. I really am kind of a nice guy. And I had asked God to forgive me because this rises up in me all the time. I really do love me a lot, a real whole lot. And I need to think properly about who I am in light of the cross so I'm not overly critical and overanalyzing things all the time and appreciating what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. But I need to see myself the way that I am. God moves toward me in covenant. And David moved toward Mephibosheth in covenant. He was keeping a promise. Then thirdly, David chose to bless Mephibosheth with abundance. Verse number 7, chapter 9. He says, do not fear, for I will show you kindness or mercy or steadfast love for the sake of your father, Jonathan. So I will show you kindness. Number two, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Number three, you shall eat at my table. Always. So three promises. I will show you kindness. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at the king's table. The commentary in the Holy Scripture shares this perspective on David's actions. It was oriental custom that rulers, and especially those of a new dynasty, should slay all the relations of a predecessor, which we talked about. David relieves him of this fear by declaring that he would show kindness for Jonathan's sake, restore to him all Saul's land, that is, his private estate at Gibeah, which had passed into the possession either of David or of a remote kinsman of Saul. And he would take him during his life into his house and his table. The commentary continues, Mephibosheth, overwhelmed by this exhibition of royal grace, testifies his gratitude by gestures. He bows down himself and by words where he confesses himself unworthy of such great goodness. David's act by ruling differently changed Mephibosheth's life radically. And that gets us to our third fact. Mephibosheth lived differently. So we see that Mephibosheth, first of all, lived precariously. 
Secondly, David ruled differently, which leads to this third fact. Mephibosheth lived differently. David's decision to bless his enemy changed the son of Jonathan's life. He now had a place at which he could eat that would be home. He could also sleep and enjoy life at this place, for he was tied to the dynasty of God's anointed. He had hitched his wagon, so to speak, to this star, David the king, by the king selection of him. So Mephibosheth, by David's kindness, received the wealth meant for him in the land allotted to his family. That's a reversal of fortune. He was lowly, had no place, had no means. And now he has means. He has a place. Somebody is assigned to produce a crop on this land for him. His wife and son and family members that followed by God's blessing would have the means to provide for themselves. David also secured for Mephibosheth the help he needed to manage the estate. The lame son of Jonathan was forever changed by David's steadfast love. Truly, Mephibosheth went from lowliness to exaltation. He was no longer worthless. For the anointed picked him up and claimed him as his own. The words Mephibosheth uses describe it well. Look at verse number 8. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? To be a dog in this culture was bad. To be a dead dog was one step worse. And he describes himself as a dead dog. I'm worthless. I had nothing. I had no hope. And now, I do. I do. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter number 19. 2 Samuel chapter number 19. This is the section of scripture I had alluded to earlier when Mephibosheth encounters David upon David's return to Jerusalem. I want to read this. Pick it up in verse number 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. From the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your lord, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. So Mephibosheth is living differently. That's the point we're trying to underscore. There's something now about Mephibosheth 
that is different based upon something that David did. Let me read again from another commentary. I, I'd like to, I could summarize these things, but I like to give credit to the guys that wrote it. I didn't write it, so I typed it in my notes. It says, the Hebrews cut off the hair on the upper lip and the cheeks, but carefully cherished it on the chin from ear to ear, and they kept it trimmed. There are various modes of trimming it. They train it into a massy, bushy form, swelling and round, or they terminate it like a pyramid in a sharp point. Whatever the mode, it is always trimmed with the greatest care, and they usually carry a small comb for the purpose. The neglect of this attention to his beard was an undoubted proof of the depth of Mephibosheth's grief. Going on, Mephibosheth's refusal to wash his clothes is likewise more than a matter of careless hygiene. It demonstrates his desire to remain ceremonially unclean during the king's absence. Now what's the point? Mephibosheth had at one time hid from David for fear of his life. And rightfully so, because of the custom of the day. Now what does he do? He mourns for David when David's gone. He loves David. And until David returned and the rightful king was on the throne, it just wasn't right in Mephibosheth's heart. I wrote it this way. Now he identifies with the king even in the monarch's shame. For he had to flee. And he's coming back. That had to be somewhat shameful for David. His son kicked him out of the city. His son rose up against him. And who's meeting him when he comes back in? A son that isn't his son. The son that wasn't his son remained loyal. So we see Mephibosheth looking at shame and security in a different way. His perspective on shame changed. He could not change his physical deformity. Lameness in his feet was his lot. But he could control his appearance. He could trim his nails. That's how the Septuagint reads about not caring for his feet. He could trim his beard. He could change his clothes. He could bathe. But he refused to care for these things out of respect and concern for David. In essence, he chose loyalty to David, even if it meant the loss of his restored fortunes. Now get this. If for some reason, somebody else comes to power, and Mephibosheth is seen as being loyal to David, He's right back where he was, hiding in the Transjordan, because they will view him as a potential rival or an enemy. So why did he take the chance? Because David showered him with love and blessing. That he didn't have to, according to custom, but he did. And it changed the way Mephibosheth looked at shame. It wasn't shameful now to identify with this king, even if he was coming back after what looked like a disgrace. 
I want to identify with him. He is God's anointed. He's my king. Then it changed his perspective on security, which I've alluded to already. In the final moments of the dialogue between Mephibosheth and David, the king makes a decision that seems to reveal indifference or doubt on his part. This is what he said. Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. Now, I've read that, and it doesn't, it didn't seem right. Ziba looks like the scoundrel, and I think Ziba had some sly things gone. He's probably a pretty sharp businessman. After all, he was running the family farm that belonged to Saul and Mephibosheth is someplace else, and when called by David, he knew where he was. So why did David do this? <coughs> Again, I was helped by a commentary because I didn't have an answer. It appeared that David was indifferent or didn't care or was under a bit of stress and handled it like I've handled things as a father, or whatever, you know. Um, the Expositor's Bible Commentary says this, and I, it was so helpful to me because it, it, it threw Mephibosheth's response in such a, a, a bright light. Did David's decision to share the estate between the two men reflect his conclusion that there was no possibility of ascertaining which of them was telling the truth? Or was it a compromise taking the place of a judgment based on fact-finding which might have been too troublesome at the time? Probably neither. As David's son, Solomon would later threaten to divide a living baby in order to discern which of the two mothers was telling the truth. So David here demands the division of the fields in order to discern whether Mephibosheth or Ziba is the liar. Now, now listen to what Mephibosheth says you and Ziba will divide the land. Mephibosheth says, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. He was willing, per this statement, to give up all of his land that he'd gotten back, give it all up, to be tied and connected to this king. That's where his security was, with the king, with the anointed. It wasn't in his land. And his answer sounds very much like the mother, the real mother of the child, who said, no, don't cut the baby in half. Let her have the baby. Let him have the land. So Mephibosheth is radically changed. So, to conclude, in this story about a lame man, we should identify with Mephibosheth. Our lives, like his, are in the hands of a potentate. Of course, that monarch is God, the creator of heaven and earth. He is our judge, and he can be our rescuer. If the creator is our rescuer, then we have a place at his table, in his palace. We sit at that table through no work of our own. Mephibosheth didn't earn the right, it was given to him. Like Mephibosheth was always from the house of Saul, we too are always sinners until the time of once and for all change. God sees rescued sinners through his son's atoning work, and David saw Mephibosheth through the covenant he made with Jonathan. 
We must embrace and appreciate this exaltation. We must cast off the allurement of earning our own place at the table. It has already been earned. But what happens, and this is to look at another reversal of fortune. If you think Job, think Job when you're talking about reversal of fortune. He was a man that feared God and hated evil, and then he lost everything. That's what I'm talking about. So what happens when our exaltation is seemingly reversed and we suffer? Mephibosheth, we see an example of that too. So Mephibosheth is helpful. Jonathan's son saw shame and security in a different way after his rescue. To bear the shame of the king was an honor. The New Testament authors say the same thing. For instance, they believe that suffering filled up the suffering of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 24. We are so united with Jesus Christ that when we suffer, he's suffering. And that suffering is appointed by God the Father for the exaltation of the Son the extension of the gospel to people that do not understand it. We are participating in Christ's work in the world through suffering. Secondly, the New Testament authors say that suffering gave them the privilege of showing loyalty to Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 12. You know, that's what's at the heart of the book of Job. Think about it for a second. Satan says, the only reason Job serves you, God, is because you give him stuff. You take away the stuff, and he won't serve you. Well, the stuff was taken away, except for his life. Job never cursed God and died. He just never cursed God. He struggled. He had a hard time. He didn't understand all of it because he was thinking like his friends were thinking that if I do good, good happens. Well, that's not how it works. The world is not perfect. God is just. God always does what is right, but we live in an imperfect world. And suffering was appointed for Job for this very reason, to prove that God is more valuable than things and people. And it's a privilege to suffer for the sake of his name. Do you know what Job got in the end? He got everything back. And more. And more. If you read the book without understanding the middle, it looks like Satan was right. Because Job repented. Job understood. Job was now quiet. and God gave him everything back. But that's not why. God does what God wants to do. It's a privilege to suffer. And then thirdly, the authors of the New Testament say that suffering opens a conduit for God's power to work. So sometimes there is a reversal of fortune for those of us who are exalted. All of us that are saved are exalted in Jesus Christ. We just are. We are Mephibosheths. We're connected to the anointed. And God gives the anointed, Jesus Christ promises that those that are in Christ's hands are in the Father's hands and he will never let anybody pluck them out. It's, it's a wonderful promise. And it's ours. But God works through our suffering when the exalted 
suffer. In suffering, we might lose our earthly security. How does our union with the anointed one help us? In the time of the Israelite kingdom, expressing and persevering in loyalty to David was to express faith in Yahweh, Jehovah, who made a promise. Mephibosheth, by remaining loyal to David, remained loyal to God who keeps promises. I think you see the parallel in our own lives. Following Jesus is following the promise keeper, his father. Let me pray, and I've got, you can ask some questions, or I've got some application questions we can go over in the last couple of minutes. Heavenly Father, to even talk of this subject as a simple man is a humbling thing. For while I understand it in concept, and I've experienced this salvation in Jesus Christ, and I study your word, there's so much of it I don't understand. You are high and exalted. And I am a servant to which you've given capability and a mind to think, but I'm finite and you're not. And your wisdom is infinite and it cannot be purchased. So these things can be hard. I pray that you take your word and this narrative and it would be an encouragement to us in the coming days, weeks, and months. And as we have opportunity... Help us to share it with someone else if it's been an encouragement and a help. But more than anything else, help us to know that loyalty to you is our hope. And we sit at the table because of your work, not our own. In Jesus' name, amen.